All right, if you would go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 3, we'll be finishing the sermon series, which we started with Matthew 18, and I want to make sure that we don't lose track of that thread. Um, remember in Matthew 18, there was a question that, that really loomed over that entire chapter, and if, if you remember, what's the question? What was the question that was asked? Who is the greatest, Right? So this question continues to haunt us. This question is a major question in the background of Titus chapter 3. In fact, it's a major question in the background of the whole book of Titus, right? Part of the issue is that sometimes we forget who we were, right? And we begin to think, How, why do people act like that? Why did you act like that? Why do you act like that now sometimes? We, we struggle, don't we, with, with who we once were. We struggle with being able to love others well. We struggle with being able to love the Lord well. We struggle with even just serving each other well. Those, of, those who are even like us, much less trying to love people who aren't like us. And so that's a question of who's the greatest. Think about as we deal with this question, as Paul says, make sure that they, they deal with the authorities over them in a certain way. For some of you, this is... You, this is a question, this is a fighting question for you, right? Because you have some authority over you you don't like, whether it's governance or a boss or a principal or a teacher or someone over you you don't care for a whole lot. So this is a question for you. And, and, and the question behind that, which Paul is saying, is who's the greatest? Who said that you deserve a certain type of leader at all? Who said that you deserve or are entitled to a certain kind of governance at all? Who said that any of this was supposed to last in some respect? What is it we're really fighting for? And if you think and are on the side of the greatest, instead of being on the side of what Christ said we ought to be, which is like humble children, then you're going to get tangled up and not be able to glorify the Lord your God because you're going to be fighting for something that the Lord is not fighting for which puts you in opposition to whom? Not just the authority over you, but who? You're now in opposition to the Lord himself. Well, I don't know about you, I've been in opposition to God, and I lost that fight every single time. And so it's important for us to not lose that question, who's the greatest, and to certainly not lose the answer, which is, you're not, that's not even a good question. That's a bad question. The real question is, are you humble like a child? And remember, it's not, that it, it, it's not that he was saying, be like a child in terms of awe and wonder and bad temperance and throwing temper tantrums and all that kind of stuff. It's No, it's like being like a child and being humble and recognizing the creator-creature distinction and that your purpose is given to you, not decided by and defined by you. It's really important for us to remember as we step into this chapter as Paul is going to close out the book of Titus with some things that are very important. Now, whenever there's a lot of repetition in a close proximity, what does that tell you in the Bible? That that's a very important issue. Now, there's going to be a repetition of a, of a, a, a phrase that we in modern evangelicalism have turned almost into a cuss word. And that phrase is good works. Now, Paul's going to say it three or four times in this chapter, and it's going to be the point of the chapter. In fact, let me read to you what Gordon Fee uh, says about this. He says, the dominant theme in Titus is good works. 
That is exemplary Christian behavior in that for the sake of the outsiders, for the life of the world essentially, in contrast to the false teachers. Now the thing that Paul does make clear is, can good works save you? Is that where good works come in? So let's get that part clear as clear can be. Your good works cannot save you. Secondly, do your good works make God love you more or less? They don't. It has no impact whatsoever on whether or not God loves you. What is the impact? Why the emphasis on good works? Because your good works are for the sake of those who are outside the family. We do what we do because we want the family to get bigger, right? We do what we do because we want that more people to come to know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ so they can know that God loves them. Had an interesting experience last night. I went to see a modern dance company. It's the Georgia, let me see if I get this right, GDC, Georgia Dance Company. And they did uh, this presentation called In This House. And, and you may be wondering, what in the world are you doing going to a modern dance thing? It was, let me just say this, it was beautiful. It was amazing. Uh, what, what these, and they were all kids, uh, high schoolers and college students. Yeah, college students. They were phenomenal in their expression and what was so moving is that they were actually grabbing onto one of the major pieces of the gospel and putting it forward. I felt as if I were hearing the rocks cry out because we've been silent for too long. See, we should be the ones who are declaring the greatest truth of the gospel, which is God sent Jesus because he loved the world. He loves his sons and daughters, right? We should be the ones who are leading that conversation instead of being the ones who are being marginalized to the edges of culture and society because we're not having that conversation. And we're leaving it to others to say, through the dance and music and all of these things, it, it was, again, it was beautiful, but the thing that pained me is Christ was utterly absent. They were completely right in what they were saying, but Christ was absent. And it grieved me because they don't want Christ in because of the way they have seen us behave too, 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 too many times. Because we don't care about the life of the world as long as we're safe. We don't care about which way the Lord is leading in terms of his sovereignty of what leader he's putting in place. Because remember from the Old Testament, how many times did he put a bad king in place? And how many times that bad king somehow, someway still glorify the Lord and progress the gospel? Maybe we got a bad one coming, if we ever had a good one. Right? Sometimes he puts a good king in place, and what do we know about the good king? How long does his influence last? So far the greatest has been 40 years. Didn't take but a generation for all that to go away. The greatest king that's ever come is Jesus, and he reigns now. And that's important for us to remember, right, as we talk about how we should act toward authorities. So before we open up this passage, I want to ask you, what role do your works play in your Christian life? What role do your works play in your Christian life? Very important to consider. Now, is it on you to save the world individually? Is it on you to be such an incredible Christian that they're going to write books about you for centuries, if we've got centuries left? 
Is it on you to take on some great project and steer it through the eye of the needle? No, it's on you to glorify the Lord your God and leverage what you have where you are. Begin with not adding anything to your life, but reassessing and evaluating where you currently are and how to use that for the glory of the Lord. How might what you're currently doing, where you live, where you work, where you play, uh, any of those things be used, leveraged, thought about in terms of good works to be a blessing to other people for the life of the world? It's an important thing for us to consider. One of the exercises that I do is I frequently will listen to atheists and post-Christians or read them because it's just important to understand how they're thinking, I think, in, in order to be able to reach them. In fact, for a while I was concerned that if I go back into this water, because they were my people, that was my tribe at one time, I worried would I be led back astray. Well, here's the good news. All it has done is embolden my calling. It makes me more passionately want to share the gospel because one of the things they so often do is they get the Bible completely wrong. But they get us completely right. Because we aren't in line with the scripture too often. One of the people that is part of this, I've mentioned him here before, it's a guy named Dave Bazan who was in a band called Pedro the Lion. He at one time led worship at Mars Hill Church. You may have heard of it. A guy named Mark Driscoll was the lead pastor. Dave has come out of Christianity, and one of the things that's interesting about him, though, is what he said recently in an article. He had a new album come out called Blanco, and he always deals with spiritual things in, his, in every single album. At some point, he deals with it, and he said this. He said, one of the things that's wrong with our nation is that Christians don't act anything like Christians, and I wish they would because this world would be a better place. That's an interesting thing from a guy who walked away from it. Right? And we can argue, well, you hypocrite, why don't you be a Christian and do better then? Well, that's a waste of our breath. He's telling us something. He's looking at the world. He is, he is, he is assessing. Now, is he right in every corner of Christianity? No, he's not, and praise God, because there will always be a remnant. Always. The Lord will always be faithful to make sure that his glory does not diminish in this world because he's not going to be mocked. And so Dave Bazan is telling us something we need to hear. And we need to assess. We need to ask this question of ourselves. What are our works for? What is our time for? And how are we using it for the good of the kingdom? So as we know that, let's step into um, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul says. He says, remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, if we just took one verse, or two verses here, and that's all we did, like you just said, I'm going to take these two verses and I'm going to spend a year working on them, thinking them through, this would be two pretty good ones. Now, you need a whole bunch of other verses to make sure you don't think that this makes you something special, that this doesn't mean God loves you more, and this is not the means of your salvation. What he's saying is, why do we have to be reminded again? What does that, what does that potentially mean? We've forgotten. And you need to know something about who these people were. This church contained a number of Jewish zealots. What are Jewish zealots? Well, if you're Rome in the first century, they're terrorists because they would kill people and, uh, and, and destroy stuff 
to try to get their point across because they didn't like being under the yoke of Rome. The Cretans themselves weren't much better. They didn't like being under the yoke of Rome either and would frequently be disobedient to the government and the governance that was over them. Now Paul makes it clear here that whether or not you like what is over you is not the question. Whether or not you agree with the policies and procedures of those over you is not the question. It's just not. You need to recognize that you are here not to overthrow the government because it has already been overthrown. Jesus has already overthrown it. He is victorious already. He sits on the throne. It is not our job to try to make sure that we set up another false government for the false government that is already over us. Our job is to work to reveal the mission. Now, does that mean we don't vote? No. Vote. Please, get involved. Does that mean we stay ignorant of policy, that we don't need to understand things? No, that's part of doing the good work of being a Christian because there are policies that are destroying entire communities and have been for years. Can I express a little frustration with you that is not directed at you? That's better, right? I have a lot of brothers and sisters who I love dearly, who seem to have just discovered that there's a thing called social justice, who seem to have just discovered that, um, that there's an issue in our country when in fact, kids not being able to read has been a problem for decades that has had a significant impact upon communities destroying them from the inside out. You can't read by the fourth grade, you're going to jail. You just are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care where you're from. You can't read. You can't get a job. You're going to try to provide for your family in a way that the law doesn't like. You're going to become a felon and you're done. By and large, that's how it goes. Kansas, Oklahoma, California... Um, there's one other state that builds their prisons based on those who can't read by the fourth grade. Why not spend that money on reading programs? I don't know. But that would be a great place if you were interested in policy making to make a difference. Stop spending money on building bigger jails and instead spend money on education because we know for a fact there's a direct correlation. Right? This ain't new. These are stats that have been known for decades. And think about how something goes generational when people can't read for decades. Washington, D.C., black males, 17 to 25, 80% of them are currently incarcerated. You don't think that has an impact on an entire generation of people when you take out 80% of the male population? Now you can say, and I can say, well, come on, fellas, just be nice. Do something different. Is that really the solution at this juncture? If they can't read, and if partially why 80% of them are in there is because they can't read in part. Right? So I, there's issues that we desperately need to be involved in, and yes, many of them are political, but oftentimes our political involvement is so that we can keep what we already have instead of leveraging it to give more away, as a generous God would do. Because he has a cattle on a thousand hills that no government has any control over. You understand? Except him. Now, did he promise us that we wouldn't go through hard times? 
You think the church in Crete was an easy church? How many of you would sign up and say, man, I, I'd love to go hang out with all those Cretans, the, the terrorists and the, the folks trying to overthrow the government? I'd love to even try to tell them that was a bad thing to do. Right? Have you ever tried to tell somebody who's convinced of something and, and have basically leveraged their whole life for it? You ever tried to tell them, no, that's not the right thing for you to do? You probably should change direction. Especially when they've shed blood and they've gone all in. See, this was not an easy ministry here for Titus, but he's saying remind them because they're going to they're gonna get this wrong. And, by the way, we are naturally inclined because of the fall, to push against authority, aren't we? We hate it. We hate someone telling us what to do. Which is what makes my job so incredibly fun sometimes. And I'm glad I'm the one getting to tell and not be told, right? Because I am, I am by far more rebellious than any single one of you. I feel like I'm the chief among the rebellious ones. I like being told what to do about like having a root canal with no, no, a surprise root canal. Like somebody sneaks up on you and gives you one. No anesthetic. But what are we called to? And why are we called to it? That's the important thing for us to remember. We are called to submit for the sake of the mission. The mission is preeminent. And so often we... We come up with our own mission instead and choose to overthrow or usurp or critique or deconstruct with no real solution biblically, biblically whatsoever. Now, this is applicable at every level. Does this apply to elementary school, middle school, and high schoolers? Do you guys have authority over you, even if it's somebody you know? And how much do you enjoy said authority? You push against it sometimes. This applies to you, so begin now to apply the truth of these scriptures and recognize that there are ways in which you can go about it in a gospel fashion. Is he saying endure injustice without opening your mouth? No, he's saying use the method and means necessary to bring about change for more than just you. Is this true for college students? Do you have authority over you somewhere? Is this true for those who have jobs? Even those who own their own businesses, do you not have authorities that are dictating your bottom line? You do. They make policies that have tremendous impact on you. And so what are we, what is our focus here? As church members, do you have authority over you? You do. And hopefully you're praying for that authority, that they would remain Focused upon the mission, that way you are blessed most of all through the focus upon that mission and not on something else. This is why it's so critical for us to continue to recognize and come back to, we, we did this in the elder retreat, we try to, try to come back to what are our values, what is the culture that we want to cultivate by virtue of our actions which reflect our values. And we try to think about everything from, at, from the front door all the way back in every cultural artifact that we have. So know that we are focused on all of those things funneling toward a culture of discipleship. Because it's the one job that the church has, the one. And so we're, we're, we may make some changes. 
We, we may look at a cultural artifact and say, no, that doesn't do that. It's out. We may say, no, this is a better cultural artifact. We'll bring it in. We didn't do a lot of changing, actually. We were pretty satisfied. There was a couple of just nuances we thought we needed to make and grow in. We've got some things coming we think will help with that as well. But here, it makes it clear, not only are you to submit to the government that is over you in a way that is glorifying to God because you're recognizing that God who is sovereign has placed them there, even the unjust ones, which doesn't answer all of our questions, by the way. But how we treat others is critically important. Notice what he says, to speak evil of no one. Who? How many? No one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward who? All people. No, 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 wait a minute, no, no, no. I think think what Paul meant was all, all the good people, right? I mean, it's just, it's hidden there in the Greek. It's like implied in the word all, I'm sure. It's it's there somewhere, right? No, all people. And notice where he is on the Isle of Crete where all people would have been very difficult to be courteous to. They were Cretans. They would not have been courteous back to you. They wouldn't have been gentle to you. Well, doesn't doesn't that give us carte blanche to fire back? No, your Savior didn't even open his mouth when he was being led like a lamb to the slaughter. How much more should we display being transformed into the image of Christ, something very, very similar? Would that we would take this position. And let me just say, anonymous doesn't, you being anonymous about it does not, does not help. Like, uh, you you being anonymous about what you say, whether it's comments online or some letter that you send, woe be unto you, because you're not. The Lord knows exactly who you are, whether we do or not. So we are called to be a different kind of countercultural people who recognize that to fight against the authorities and the powers over us is a waste of our missional time. Notice what he says. Be obedient so that you would be ready for every good work. We waste so much of our time kicking against the goads of the sovereign God. We waste so much of our time and energy on things that will never, ever, ever be leveraged for missional purpose. We need to do a better assessment of ourselves. So, How is your view of and response to various governing authorities affecting your readiness for every good work and witness in the world? Better said, is your view of governance and all these things actually healthy enough that it is helping you to be ready for every good work and mission in the world? It's not just that it's, it's, it's neutral, but is it actually helpful Do you have a biblical perspective? Now listen, I know I just opened up a can of ginormous worms and they are wriggling all over the floor. And I'm fine with that because Paul opened it, really, not me. And I'm fine with us having discussions about it and helping you because that's part of the discipleship process. Some of you need to wrestle with some of this stuff. Don't don't just get mad and say, well, Henry, he's he's an idiot. He said he's voting for Ross Perot anyway. 
No, let's talk about it. Let's, let's get down into it. This is discipleship. But recognize, don't just quarrel. Don't not be gentle about it. Let's try to get to a place where God is glorified in all that we do and say and think. Amen? So, how does how you treat others affect your witness in the world? Right? I, sometimes I'm stunned at, um, at how we treat those who serve us. Like I'll go to, sometimes to a restaurant and how we treat the person serving us is crazy atrocious sometimes. Now, now not to call anyone out, but Zach Schaefer is, is one of the finest I have ever seen at building relationships with servers at the places that he frequents. And it was a beautiful thing for me to witness firsthand the waitress who wasn't even serving our table come up and want to show him pictures of her children and update him on things that are going on. Just a wonderful, wonderful testimony in that respect, whether it's those who serve us in restaurants or those who serve us anywhere. I've seen us flip a switch, like we're talking, yes, I was just, I was sharing the gospel with someone. What, wait, what? Can you not get us, can you, can you not hurry up? Anyway, what was I talking about? The gospel, yeah. I mean, we, we have to be more aware of how we're coming across in the world because again, let me remind you, Everybody is assessing your witness. Everybody. And you have no idea how it'll come back around on you. And let me give you an example. I think I've told this story before. But we had visited a church in Macon. We were in the long, horrible process of trying to find a church. And I was at the, at the, we were toward the end of that process, and I was exhausted. That's why I feel so, for many of you who may be visiting our church this morning, you may be looking for a church. It, it, it's just an arduous and difficult process. God bless you. I will pray for you. But we were exhausted, and I, when I get exhausted, um, get snarky. I don't know if you can tell. Um, and my sarcasm goes through the roof, and it starts to have teeth. And so we were going into what, for those of you, this is a cultural artifact. Many of you may not even know existed, but this thing called Blockbuster Video. It's where you could rent videos firsthand and look through them. And so, so I was coming in, this guy was coming out that had been in a Sunday school class. And uh, he said, hey man, it's good to see you. And I grabbed his hand, and I pulled him a little bit close to me, and I said, is it really? Let his hand go, and I walked off. <laughs> it was beautiful. No, it wasn't. My wife said, did you really need to do that? I was like, yeah. Yeah, I did. But why? Well, here's the truth. Oh, about... I don't know, three months later, in walks this guy into the clinic. He'd torn his ACL skiing. His name's King Kemper. King walks in, and I just put my head in my hand. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. And he didn't act like he had remembered, okay? And he didn't, thank God. I said, King, do you remember coming out of a Blockbuster video and some guy going, you had greeted him, and you said, and the guy said, uh, is it really? And dropped your hand and walked off. He was like, yeah, man, that was really, really weird. I said, now ask yourself how I know that. And he was like, oh my gosh, you're the guy. <laughs> I said, I am, and I'm sorry. And King and I became great friends, and King went on to support significantly the work at the rescue mission. <laughs> what was I doing? Now, that's just God's grace, by the way. Don't go thinking, I can be a jerk, and God will make up for it. No, it didn't always work like that. And you never know how who you're treating you're going to encounter again in some other circumstance. Be very careful. Because you want to encounter them as family at some point. All right, let's look at verses 3 through 8, which we've been 
dealing with uh, so much throughout this series. We've read a number of times. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. Let me pause for just a second. It says, for. What's that there for? He's saying, you should be and do verses 1 and 2 because you were once one who needed someone to come along and be gentle to you and evidence the truth of the gospel to you because you were lost. You, at one time, needed a display of the gospel in God's people to help draw you to himself. For you were no different than them. So he says, for we ourselves, including himself, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice that those are all interpersonal type things, things that would have been displayed in our behavior, things that would have been clearly seen. Yes, at one time, it was clear you were lost. And now, it should be clear that you are found. Not that you would be perfect, not that you would be burdened by trying to be perfect, but that you would relax and rest in your union with Christ and the work of the Spirit. Notice what he says next. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Many think that this was an early hymn that he is, Paul is recounting, something they would have sung or recited or confessed. It is a beautiful thing. It's one of the reasons we've been reciting and confessing it, to remember who we were and who we now ought to be in God in Christ. Because he's the one who came for us. We didn't go looking for him. And he poured out his Holy Spirit on us richly. Would that we would not be afraid of the Holy Spirit and what he may have us do or not do and how he may use us in so many beautiful ways for the glory of God. And this is baptismal language, but it's bigger than baptismal language because it's not just about the outside, it's about the inside. You have been renewed. You've been washed inside and out by the work of Christ. Listen at verse 8. It says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you, Titus, Pastor Titus of the Cretan church, to insist upon these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you hear that? That same is true for us too. We are being called, we are being pressed by this text. It is my calling as well to insist these things of you, which is why it is so important that we not let grace be cheap, that we not, that we not allow good works to be a cuss word, that we keep everything in its right place. I'm to insist on who you once were so that you would not forget and remember that you needed being saved. We forget, don't we? I'm to insist on who you now are so that you don't let 
the weight of your past sin, which, by the way, has been cast as far as the east is from the west, not continue to have dominion over you, you've been set free. And amen. And to insist that that's not just for you, that that is for the life of the world, that it is for good works, which Paul says in Ephesians have already been prepared beforehand. There are things that we can do that can make a difference in this world. This is why we need each other. This is why we need discipleship. This is why we need to be in community and wrestling with these things together. So often we're confused because we don't ever wrestle with these things. And so Paul is being so gracious to point them to the truth. Listen to what John Calvin says of this passage. He says, Believers thought that ungodly people were worthless and did not deserve any forbearance. How many of us have struggled with that? There are people that we look at and we think, ain't no way, ain't no way you're saving that person. Ain't no way, ain't no way God can redeem someone with the last name Clinton. Okay, well, he cannot. Really. If he can't save her or him or any of their lineage, then there is no hope for you. And would that we would be praying for those that we consider to be lost and enemies. Would that that would be our heartbeat to develop us so that we would do good works instead of fighting against that which the sovereign Lord has put in place. Listen to what the rest of what he says. So Paul is correcting such severity, which he knows leads to pride, or who is the greatest, which leads us away from Jesus, by the way. Remember, the antithesis to faith is what from the Habakkuk series? Pride, not doubt. When we realize that the charges we level against others are true of us, we are prepared to keep our pride in check. The person who is trying to seek pardon for himself finds it easy to forgive others. The only reason we are unwilling to forgive our brothers is that we are ignorant of our own faults. We cannot see the plank in our own eye, which is why it's important for us to wrestle with it, and to be intentional about it. So, does who you once were apart from Christ humble you? Are you humbled by who you are without Jesus? Because if not, if you think, I thought I was pretty awesome. I thought I was doing pretty good. I don't really need all this stuff. Well, good luck in this world. We ought to be humbled by who we were, and that humbling should not cripple us. That's different. Does who you are now in Christ empower you to devote yourself to good works? Those are strong words. Empower and devotion. Those are not casual. Or are you languishing under the weight of sin, long forgiven by Christ? Remember the meaning of your baptism. Remember what is inherent within that. As we will witness later on, the baptism of two children, two infants. We'll have the opportunity to remember that we too were once infants in our sin. We were infantile, not knowing how to be saved, not knowing where grace was. Whether you agree with infant baptism or not is what, not what matters, but that you recognize in this event who you once were and who you now are. That is the benefit. Verses 9 through 15 wrap up the letter and give us a couple of things more to think about. Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let me take just a moment to touch on this. What Paul is saying is don't get tangled up in a bunch of nonsense that carries you away from your missional purpose. If we were spending our energy being creative, redemptive architects instead of being wicked deconstructionists with no cure, we wouldn't have time to worry about whether or not the genealogy in Matthew matches the genealogy in Luke and why. We wouldn't get tangled up in the name that's missing in one, one section of Kings and the name that's missing in one section of Chronicles. We wouldn't make that a, a point of departure. Those are fine things to study. But at the behest of mission? See, we wouldn't get tangled up in all of these things about law and confusion about what you've been set free to do. You've been empowered to be devoted to good works. Paul's saying, don't let these people take the church away from its mission. Notice the grace even to them, though. Tell them once, tell them twice, and if they will not repent, walk away from them. Let them go. That's not even excommunication. There's still a grace in that. That's not full departure. That's just, I'm not even going to bother talking to you again. No, I don't want to have three or four lunches with you so we can hash out infralapsarianism or supralapsarianism. I wasn't there. I don't know. Fortunately, none of you have done that, by the way, and praise God. Right? You're doing great in that regard. But there may be things I say to you, that's a great question but it ain't worth our time. How does this fit with the mission? What are you doing that you have time for these kinds of questions and to read entire volumes on this stuff? Now, it may sound to you like, oh, look at Cameron tipping the scales, hedging his bets, getting us all focused on doing stuff so we can't bother him so he can sip lattes and, drink and, and talk to atheists. Jerk. <clears throat> I'm not trying to tip the scales. That's why you get once and you get twice. But the third time, it's over. I'm not talking about it anymore. So if you're concerned about whether or not it is part of that, let's, let's talk about that. I don't want you to think I'm trying to set up a hedge that you can't ask questions and you've got to buy into everything. No, be scriptural. Let's talk about whether or not it matters to the mission. I want you to know. But let's be careful that we're not that guy or girl. As we have small groups starting, okay, don't be this guy or girl. Don't be the guy or girl that hijacks the small group and wants to take something on some giant rabbit trail that takes away from the mission, and you're the person always arguing about the age of the earth. Uh, who cares how old it is? God loved it. And he wants us to do something on it. Let's do that, right? Don't be the person who who breaks out all, you know, some sort of lexicon and argues about which manuscript has what Greek word or Hebrew word. Don't be that guy or girl. As we have small groups, let us be a people who are committed to mission and how to do what Christ has empowered us and called us to be devoted to doing. Amen? That was weak, but okay. It's an amen from me. Philip Towner says this, Titus' teaching is meant to prepare believers who have a strong sense of their responsibility to think through the practical implications of their faith, which is theology, and put those things into action, which is good works. 
So what kinds of unprofitable and worthless missional distractions are you wrestling with? What kinds of things are keeping you from thinking about what it is that you have been sent, that you've been redeemed for? Right? That's worth us thinking about. Because if we don't, they will lead us astray and we never even know what happened to us. We won't even know what hit us. So, what do we learn from Titus 3, 1 through 15? And you may notice I didn't really read 12 through 15. It's more of an ending to the letter. Not much in there that, that we could benefit from because most of the names, we don't even know who they are with the exception of Tychicus who shows up in the book of Colossians and a couple of other places. Um, but he does again say, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. One more time. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unprofitable. So he repeats it yet again. That's the part that we would need to hear. But what do we learn from this, this chapter? That our good one, our good works matter. They do to the mission of redemption to those outside the church. Two, we were once no better than the Cretans. And that should give us hope and a desire to see people redeemed. It is because of who we were and God's grace to us in that that we should have hope for and a desire to see others who are Cretans like us, who we once were, to be saved. Three, we must be diligent to reject missional distractions and devote ourselves to good works. We have to. We can't be casual about it. We can't do everything. We just can't. And so something we need to be discussing. So the beautiful part about this chapter for us today is that it leads us to the sacrament of baptism. And in, in what Paul said in that hymnic piece is definitely something that we need to be aware of. Is that what we were once were totally, totally keeps us from being able to save ourselves. That none of the works that we've done beforehand in our fallenness are worth anything. They don't draw God's love and attention to us. No, he gives us his love because he himself is loving. We only love because he first loved, right? And so in the baptism of a child, what we have is this, this child is being, um, in a sense, set apart. That's one of the reasons that we use, uh, we don't dunk them full on that we, we are setting them apart just as an instrument for holiness would be set apart in the Old Testament. So this child is being set apart not because there's anything in them that is, that is savable by anything they will do, but because the Lord is evidencing his work already in their lives by giving them to Christian parents and a Christian church. Do you understand the blessing that that is? Sometimes I think we forget that. As one who was born to parents who did not at all care anything about the gospel. My mother overdosed. My father killed himself. My stepfather spent 29 years in prison. My grandmother drank herself to death and thought Jimmy Swaggart was great. My grandfather didn't care about our family. He cared about other women. No evidence of the gospel anywhere, and I have scars upon scars because of it. I would love to have been born to a Christian family and grown up in a Christian church where more of my days than not I'd have known Jesus loved me. I'd trade it. I trade it all. So, in this, we have the evidence of a great blessing. God is continuing his Abrahamic covenant by providing children. Doesn't mean they're saved. This, this baptism is not salvific. These waters don't do anything to the inside of this child. But the Lord will use it in his grace over the life of that child. Because there's something spiritual going on here that we can't see. And that's beautiful. If you would, uh, you guys can come on down. The king's.
This is Brent and Melissa King, and we're going to be baptizing Claire and Graham this morning. Um, and there's just so much to this that, uh, that I'd love for you to know, but you've got to get to know them. And this is a beautiful picture of the work of the gospel um, at work in both Brent and Melissa's life for the sake of their children. And what a beautiful thing that we get the chance to witness this together as a church. Now let me remind you, they're going to take some vows, and you're going to take a vow. And you should not take this vow if you're not committed to at least pray for the parents and the children and then serve in our children's ministry or serve in some way in the church to ensure that we can continue to do these types of things, right? So be careful that you don't casually take a vow. And when we do ask the question um, of members, it's members only who will respond. And when you are asked the question, you will respond with the raising of your right hand when we get to that part. But this is a beautiful picture of what Peter promised in Acts chapter 2. He said, all that is happening, all of the unfolding of the gospel is not just for you. It's for your children. And that's the beauty of what baptism is in this case. It's the evidence of the truth of what Peter said, that God is at work in the life of both Claire and Graham already in ways that we can see as evidence in Brent and Melissa's life and the life of this church and in ways we can't yet see as we know that he is faithful to pursue his sons and daughters. So let me pray for us, and then I want to baptize them. I can't tell you... the joy that it is and the weight of it um, to have this opportunity to serve them in this way. And I hope that you feel some of that joy and that you take time to get to know them because we're going to be praying for them. It helps to know some stuff. And they'll tell you. He loves tennis. Don't hold that against him. All right, let me pray and then we'll baptize. Father, thank you for the gift of this moment. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for how you have given us the opportunity to be redeemed, that you love us despite who we once were, and you love us and are creating us into image bearers, transformed into the image of Christ, of which baptism is a beautiful picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not just that our guilt is taken away and your wrath is exhausted, but that we are given what is necessary to walk in newness of life. I pray that someday, for Graham and Claire, that this will be an important moment, that this will be something that pricks their heart to be drawn to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.